the lie the poetry tells is constant as the truth itself without the lies and the false beliefs where would we be where would we be welcome to the state of the theory podcast i'm hannah and i'm an india and we are your theory doctors Hello. Hi. We're back. <laughs> what are we talking about today? Uh, so we are talking about citizenship and children. Uh, and we'll explain what we mean in a second. Uh, just to make you aware, today is the 28th of February as we're recording this. So um, if anything has happened in the last week or so, uh, we will not be talking about that. Um why citizenship and children, Hannah? We've been talking about this topic a lot, actually. Um, really since last fall. Yeah. Um, when the Trump administration, and I, I don't know if it was a Trump administration, I think it might have been Trump on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know... It's the same thing. Really, it's the same thing. This, you know, it, it kind of depends sometimes. Uh, but he started making sounds or, you know, tweets mm. about uh, American law and what he calls birthright. Mm. So, well, what is called birthright citizenship, but what he calls anchor babies yeah. or um, people who come to the United States to give birth and automatically grant their their baby American citizenship mm. and then use that as a nefarious way mm. uh, to get a green card and mm. then infiltrate to mm. the United States and steal jobs mm. from hardworking Americans, mm. right? That's the story. The United States uh, and Britain has a version of this um, th- allows children born in the United States to access citizenship. Mm. Um, originally, it was... Um, I say originally. I don't really mean that, of course, because slaves were not gra- mm. <laughs> not granted citizenship. Mm. Um but uh, babies born in the United States were automatically granted citizenship. That law has, has kind of changed. Mm. You have to be there mm. for a number of months after mm. you're born in order to then kind of make use mm. of or mm. access your citizenship in whatever way. Mm. Um, so it's become a little bit stricter mm. uh, in the last kind of 60 mm. years. Um, Britain also has a, a version of birthright citizenship. Mm. Um, Interestingly enough, one that we are kind of vaguely familiar with, us being forms of, of immigrants. Well, I, I I, mean, when I was born, you did automatically be, get to be British by virtue of being born in Britain. So I am an anchor baby. Um, though, yeah. Though um, my family didn't choose to stay on in Britain. Um, I have taken taken a job in Britain and lived in Britain as a, as a consequence of uh, my parents coming to work in Britain as doctors, uh, and when I was born, you, you, you were able to access uh, access British citizenship. Um, and the other, so so part of why we are doing this episode is is to trace it trace it back to that that decision last year that uh, the Trump administration met, made. Um, and in more recent weeks, uh, we are also responding to the Shamima Begum story. Uh, Shamima Begum being a British citizen uh, who, aged 15, um, decided to, was convinced to, was forced to, depending on your position, uh, 
go uh, to Syria and marry a, a soldier for the for Islamic State IS, uh, and uh, was uh, made pregnant, has since given birth, and is now in uh, the position where she is being denied her rights as a, as a citizen because Britain does not want to allow her to come back to Britain, uh, even though she is British. Uh, Britain has claimed that by virtue of her Bangladeshi origin, she, uh, should be, she should be treated as a Bangladeshi citizen. She's never been to Bangladesh, as far as I know. Uh, Bangladesh doesn't recognize her as a, as a citizen. Britain is trying to figure out a way of recognizing an alternative citizenship for her because international law doesn't technically doesn't permit you to render someone stateless uh, but Britain in 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 true British fashion uh, wants to try and find a way around that uh, so that she Britain doesn't have to allow her back into into Britain as uh, what the BBC is describing as an IS bride um, yeah this is interesting. I mean, we keep we we say Britain. There's a lot of debates, and yeah. and the government isn't isn't of one mind no. on no. this issue. No. The and and even I think the Home Office isn't of yeah. one mind on this issue. It's yeah. not particularly clear what it is yeah. they want. Mm. Um, there's many kind of theories we talked in our previous episode mm. about sort of rational actors and the yeah. state as a as a rational actor. There are theories about the the current uh, Home Secretary and mm. about what his is a guy named Sajid Javid, um, what his um, kind of reasoning mm. for this is. Mm. There's you know debates about his kind of his setting himself up for political greatness or whatever. Mm. You know, there's all these things. Um, many lawyers have weighed in. Yeah. Um, it it is a kind of it sits in in the realm of legal discourse yeah. currently. There's, yeah. it's it it is essentially a legal question. Yeah. Um, our interest in it stems from the fact that we've been talking about birthright citizenship mm. since before this mm. story, and we thought that oh, mm. this is actually quite topical, and there's a, a pattern or trend going on mm. around mm. discussions around who gets to be considered a member of the state and who mm. gets to be excluded, even if they previously were considered a member of the state. Yeah. Um, it is. It has been quite difficult for a state to make somebody mm. stateless in this way since the 1940s, when, of course, we saw um, mm. Nazi Germany retract mm. citizenship mm. from all Jewish mm. Germans, um, and that was was the kind of beginning, the mm. first stage mm. of the Holocaust. Um, and a lot has been written about that process and mm. the kind of human rights and the kind of legal framework of, of human rights discourse in international law and in the international kind of framework of all this mm. has been about protecting citizenship rights mm. for individuals mm. and has been about denying states the kind of unilateral capacity or authority mm. to just strip someone's citizenship um, in that way mm. so that was a response mm. I think to sort of international law responding yeah. to the mm. uh, the Nazi kind of policies around yeah. citizenship um, this is it's a weird case and a lot of people are I mean to, to like and partly to, to to cover us a little bit in mm. terms of our criticism of the mm. British state I think it is 
there's not a kind of unilateral decision yeah. that's been made about this. Mm. Yeah, I mean, but I, it's I, a weird I, thing. Yeah, and I think it's interesting as well because I think even on the right, I think there is a general recognition that if Britain, if the British government does this, this being stripping Shamima Begum of her citizenship, that that decision is fairly vulnerable in terms of legal challenge. Um, I've seen, I've certainly seen posi- op-ed positions saying that you know there will be a challenge and the British government may well lose that, and it's it it's sort of not unlike mo- decisions that the Trump administration have made, which have been or potentially could be vulnerable to to legal decisions. But that even I think the position is even if the government has to back down in legal terms, it can still be seen to have tried to do the thing that its political base allegedly wants, right? So I'm thinking of Trump's Muslim ban, which um, certainly various bits of it have at various points been struck down by by various levels of, of, of courts. But the Trump base can still be happy that Trump is trying to do what he said he was going to do and stop any Muslims from from coming to Britain, from coming to America, and I think there's something similar going on here, where the the government can can be seen to do what its supporters want, even when everyone is aware that what they're trying to do is illegal and they won't be able to do it because it's illegal. Yeah, yeah, that um, the, the precedent mm. itself the saying of doing it and mm-hmm. then the, the sort of putting it out into the world as a mm. uh, a wish mm. yeah <laughs> or a hope yeah. that it gives it it gives it a certain type of reality yeah um, I'm sorry not to interrupt yeah, but I think yeah. it's connected to the the point we were making last week about rationality as well right what is a rational response so much of uh, the rhetoric I've seen has been about it is reasonable and proportionate to say that if you decide to join an organization that is as evil as ISIS, then being stripped of your citizenship is a reasonable punishment. Is is so much of that? So much of the discourse is is underpinned by this notion of what is reasonable punishment and whether loss of citizenship is ever a justified punishment uh, or where, and what would that look like as opposed to allowing someone to come back to Britain and being tried and perhaps convicted perhaps imprisoned as a citizen and and where, where the um, where one falls in, in that question seems to determine what one's response is. Yeah. The other side of this, so there's the citizenship stuff, and mm. um, Agamben is the, the theorist here, yeah. isn't he? Um, I think 2014 was the sort of, in the geography literature, yeah. was the sort of year of the, the camp. Agamben, yeah. It was the yeah, year of the, the camp. camp. Everything was a camp yeah. in 2014, and, and that was the kind of trendy metaphor. Um, it's, it, it is relevant. There's something yeah. about this particular theory that m- makes it I think quite 
uh, attractive. Mm. There's there's something that draws you to it. Mm. it it's quite intuitive, but mm-hmm. it also means that I think it has been quite trendy and mm. overused. Mm. It's relevant here because Agamben identifies uh, using a combination of, of Foucault and Hannah Arendt, who we talked about mm. last week in The mm. Banality of Evil um, and the way that totalitarianism operates. Um, he, he makes this argument that individuals can be turned into this kind of um, state of bare life. He calls mm. it bare life. It comes from uh, the Roman Empire and Roman law and the way that uh, the Roman Empire kind of thought about individuals as mm. citizens and as kind of biological beings mm. and whatever. Um, that's all kind of philosophy mm. that we won't go into. But ultimately what, what he says is that the state has the ability uh, through the way that sovereignty is kind of enacted and through the way that citizenship is mm. constructed, mm. Um, the, how it works essentially, uh, individuals can be rendered um, this kind of bare life, which means that they can be killed, their bodies can be killed, their lives can be taken from them, but they're not sacrificed. Mm. Their deaths are not um, considered meaningful in the way that a citizen's death would be. Mm. So they... um, they can have violence done to them in mm. a way that is legal mm. and appropriate and mm. proportional and acceptable, mm. um, which is the, the sort of his extension of the banality of evil. So, so from in terms of our, our episode last week, um, Indian army can kill young Kashmiri men, and their death doesn't mean anything. Uh, but when uh, when terrorists bomb Indian army targets and Indian soldiers get killed, then their death becomes martyred, as it were. They're, they're, they become martyrs in the cause of the nation. Yeah, they are sacrificed. Yes, yeah. Um, yes. And the the condition of bare life yeah. um, is a... Agamben, you know, talks about it as being a, a tactic of the mm-hmm, state. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a tool of the state. And for him... Uh, originally, the space of the camp becomes mm. what he calls mm. a kind of space of exception in which bare life mm. is enacted. And so yeah. all the people in a, mm. in a, a concentration camp mm. are are rendered bare life, and therefore the mm. camp can do mm. whatever it does to mm. them in a way mm. that is legal mm. and acceptable. Mm. So it's not that... Um, and and this is what he says, how, how democratic states can move towards totalitarianism mm. using perfectly legal processes yeah. and perfectly legal frameworks around citizenship, mm. subjecthood, um, sovereignty, and state institutions, mm. and the law, mm. um, in order to move towards totalitarianism. So mm. democracy moves to totalitarian government quite easily through mm. this, this process. And yeah. in fact, democracy creates the conditions by which totalitarian practices mm. can become normalized mm. and that is kind of his his call for concern that is yeah. that in fact a sort of post-world war ii post-holocaust response was to set up a legal framework mm. whereby the holocaust could never happen again mm. he actually says you know no, it is through that same legal framework that a holocaust could happen again yeah. and this is the kind of process that he's talking about mm. 
that a, a person has citizenship of a place mm. normally. There's mm. There are people who mm. don't mm. Um, through various kind of reasons. Refugees are the sort of classic contemporary mm. example of, of being rendered stateless f- through mm. various means. Mm. Um, the 20th century, the, the um, kind of Europe's Jewish communities are, are mm. the 20th century classic example. Mm. Um, this is different. Mm. This has a different feel to it, and it is because mm. the... Partly because maybe it's an individual. Mm. Maybe also because it's a it's a person who's left Britain. Mm. Um, maybe because it has to do with the Islamic State, and so she's left Britain to go to a state that doesn't exist as a state in the international mm. framework. Mm. IS mm. isn't recognized as being mm. a state that can mm. grant citizenship. Mm. Mm. So... It's not like she's yeah. like attempting no. to gain legal residency in another state. No, and, and and also she's left Britain to join a state that is generally universally recognized as evil. Yeah, right. Like it's 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 not like uh, it's there, there's a difference between her choosing to go to. Saudi Arabia, her choosing to go to Iran, or her choosing even to her choosing to go to join the recognized Syrian government. You know, all all of those things. Uh, it seems that so much of the response to her is about setting IS up as the ultimate test case, as it were, the limit of humanity. Right? What 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 do we consider? civilized and human and what do we consider to be beyond the pale yeah and 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 is the is the limit case of if you do this then you should be prepared to have all your rights taken away from you yeah is the is the is the the logic in terms of this apparently rational response yeah and of course the the apparently rational response uh sets up her decision to leave Britain and go and join IS as, if not a rational decision, then a sovereign decision, right? That she she chose of her own volition to go and join IS. Therefore, she should be prepared to face the consequences of not being allowed to come back to Britain and not having her citizenship recognised. Yeah. There's a, a some of the fears, I think, from the sort of academic side mm. of things is... Um, this exists. This the discourse exists on a sliding scale. So yeah. there's a rather than a, a kind of clearly kind of supporters of and and people who go to join the Islamic State yeah. are separate from European Muslims. Yeah, and and there's a clear distinction between the two. Yeah, but in fact, you know, historically. Mm. Um, and given contemporary discourse, in fact, that's a sliding scale. Yeah. And so, you know, British Muslims are all at risk, according yeah. to the government's discourse, are all at risk of wanting to go join IS, yeah. which, um, you know, realistically, mm. that's a really weird yeah. kind of position to take. Mm. But that, in fact, there's Islamophobia starts to creep in. Mm. Um, and so it's very difficult 
to say where would this stop mm. um where if this precedent were set where mm. where would it end mm. and, and could it potentially at some point down the line mm. include british muslims as a group in yeah. some way or british mm. muslims from particular parts of the mm. world in some way yeah. um so that's the sort of fear it's not the kind of um you know everyone has a right to go join is mm. yeah. i don't think that is the the concern yeah. is is a terrifying and, yeah. and truly horrific yeah. Yeah. Uh, organization yeah. but yeah so, so but one doesn't have to <laughs> defend her decision to go and join IS and we'll, we can talk we'll talk much more about that word decision in a second yeah. uh, to say that having your citizenship stripped from you is not reasonable punishment yeah right that that uh and there there've been a lot of uh, there's been a lot of social media discourse about uh setting up white british people you know thought experiments like what if a white british person went to fight uh for an another country for an enemy country would they have their citizenship stripped away in the same way uh as a as a rhetorical device to to question the motives of the british state in attempting to derecognize shamima begum as a citizen yeah um but there's this other the other piece so there's mm. the citizenship stuff mm. and a, and the sort of a gumbin mm. bare life question but then there's this other bit and that is the childhood yeah we have bit. i mean we've been we've been talking about shamima begum as an as a sovereign conscious adult with agency. Yeah, we've used the word person and I think yeah. we use the word person specifically because yeah. it's ambiguous here. Yeah. And there's a a very interesting and this goes on and it, it it's um certainly the Black Lives Matter movement has discussed at length mm. Mm. um how the state deals with this concept of the child. Um she herself has a child. Yes. At the time that she left Britain, she was 15, yes. which according to international law, um, British okay. law, uh, general kind of understandings yeah. of, of kind of the life course, it, she would have counted as a child. Right. Um, some people might might use the word young person or mm. you know mm. youth or whatever the, mm. to differentiate her from maybe an infant or a toddler mm. but 15 years old she's not an adult she's not an adult mm. uh, by any stretch of the imagination so that mm. aspect of this story is fascinating for us mm. probably horrifying for parents of teenagers yes. um um as we are recording this uh there's been a story of a shooting range in Merseyside uh in England that uh decided apparently as a response to overwhelming demand from its clientele to ha- to use photographs of her as a target uh in in the shooting range and uh a spokesperson for the shooting range said that they were doing this as so that their clients could have a bit of fun and the phrase that le- leapt out at us was uh they it it allows them to 
let loose the inner child in all of us was the phrase. Yeah, the shooting range, I think, takes pride in, in having creative, fun, uh, playful targets that their customers can request. Um, and they introduced they introduced uh, this particular option. I think sort of it, like it's in that sort of weird uh, kind of um, it, I guess like Pepe the Frog type tongue in cheek. Can you tell if they're kidding? Can are they not kidding? Kind of you know online troll type way and. They justified it by saying, you know, our our playful, fun targets allow us to kind of access our inner child. Yeah. Uh, which is... The, yeah, so that... that children, inner, children shooting children, children shooting is children, the, yeah. the, the kind of... But that inner child is white, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, and oh. it recalls immediately to me, I've, I recently kind of quite late, hopped on the Black Klansman bandwagon mm. um, in the, you know, the, the Spike Lee film uh, came out last year. There's a scene in it where uh, the members of this particular branch of the clan are out at the shooting range or their own kind of like, mm. you know, backyard, right? It's the United States. Mm. Backyard can be a shooting range in parts of the United States. And then at the end of the scene, after they've left, it becomes clear that the targets that they're shooting at are in the shape of African-American children. Mm. Um, and it's this, he, he films it uh, quite cleverly, always Spike Lee does. And this immediately kind of, this image was conjured up that it's white people, uh, uh, you know, letting out their their kind of inner boy, hmm. shooting children of color. Yeah, and you have the I mean the 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 discourse of childhood when applied to someone like Shamima Begum, and the, uh, and her the inability or unwillingness of uh, of so many to recognize her as a child, you know, to treat her as old enough to know better and therefore old enough to be treated as an adult is replicated at multiple points for various children of color, right? So we, uh, a couple of years ago when, um, the refugee crisis on the France, France, Britain border, you know, the jungle in Calais was much more a part of news. Uh, there was a lot of uh, right-wing hysteria about these people who are being allowed in because they're kids, but they look so much older. You know, these often men, but not always, uh, uh, being, or rather often boys, but not always, being presented as adult men because they look bigger, they look older. Uh, you saw the same rhetoric uh, in the aftermath of multiple shooting of black boys in America. You know, we can think of Trayvon Martin, we can think of Michael Brown, uh, when the stand your ground laws that allows you to shoot if you are in fear of your life is being deployed because, the, so the logic goes, I am clearly justified in my fear because that boy looks old enough to be 18. And it's that looking old enough to be 18 the, the race dynamic behind that, right? If, if I'm white, then I am allowed to be a child for much longer. Uh, 
if I'm not white then I look older and therefore I'm not allowed to be a child. Yeah. Or they're like, um, with Michael Brown especially, mm. I think this was used, it was fascinating because he was um, he was shot by a youngish white mm. officer. Mm. Um, I say youngish, I mean like under the age of 60. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which appears to be, I mean, I mean, at this point, the president of the United States is in his 70s and, and he is often referred to as a man-child. So, yeah. you know, it... You just it, you get older and older. The kind of limit at which a, a white man can be a child, yeah. but um, the the kind of discourse around Michael Brown was that he everything about kind of his identification as a child. He was only a child if if the person interacting with him viewed mm. him as a child. Whereas, mm. oh, a kind of a white person and especially a white man, but also white women can identify as children for as long as they like, mm. as long as they, they want to, mm, you know, mm, Ryan mm, Lochte gets mm. to be a kid because he, he says that he's a boy, yeah. you know, and, and who am I to challenge him identifying as a boy? And the, the, um, the kind of discourse of fear around Michael Brown, uh, being tall and muscular and behaving like a man by buying mm-hmm. cigarettes, right? Mm-hmm. That kind of um, he. There's nothing about him that is essentially a child. Yeah. Because he's not white. Yeah. Essentially, the the, the multiple and you'll have to remind me of the name. I'm forgetting the the, the most famous of these stories, but multiple stories of white men raping students on university college and university and college campuses yes who's, who's the one that was the most famous where um uh well brock turner brock turner is the one i was thinking of behind a dumpster at yes. stanford yes and there was so much of the discourse around that story and stories like that was about them either being infantilized or at the very least, you know, young white men full of promise. Uh, the, the, that full of promise line was was used a lot in the Brock Turner case. Yeah. Um, yes, you know, he was a swimming star. Yeah, the, the, his, his future is ahead of him, and therefore we should treat him with compassion, mercy. Yeah, and it goes the other way too, where the yeah. victim as well. So, the, like the, the, the shooting of young black men and mm. black children, um, the victim of of some mm. of these high profile cases mm. but also historically when right, it goes back uh, much longer mm. if the the victim of the sexual assault is a young woman of mm. color in mm. particular mm-hmm. um, weird kind of eugenicist or yeah. um, kind of mm. biological essentialist yeah. arguments around mm. the female body mm. right you mm. see these trips about Serena Williams mm-hmm. very famously mm-hmm. um, that uh, if you are developed enough, physically developed enough, and it's like it's super gross, physically developed enough to be considered a woman, whether or not you are ten or twelve or thirty, you know, it doesn't matter. You're no longer a child. Yeah. And these these uh, biological essentialist tropes are far more often ascribed to black and brown bodies. And and, and in Shumi Begum's case, it's clearly motherhood, right? It's yeah. the ability to give birth. And, yeah. and and have a baby that marks her out as therefore clearly and unambiguously adult. Yeah. Um, except, of course, by any cultural legal definition, those two 
are not the same. No. You know, we don't consider uh, puberty as the marker of adulthood. Not anymore. And specifically yeah. the legal, yeah. the, the changing of legal discourse was actively fighting yeah. that because yeah. there's a whole feminist yeah. literature around yeah. protecting girls yeah. who have gone through puberty but who are not considered yes. adults and who should yeah. not be considered yeah. adults. There's that feminist yeah. fight yeah. has has been ongoing. Yeah. And and it's that same trope of motherhood that connects Shamima Begum's identity as a mother to her to this that that connects her to this apparent category of adulthood uh, that is being used to justify stripping her of her citizenship, which is and and this discourse is so completely silent about the baby, yeah, that the, the actual baby who is also British uh, certainly has has a clear right to be British and clearly cannot be implicated in any kind of a decision to go and fight and fight for ISIS whether Shamima Begum can, can or can't. Her baby clearly can't. But that the, the, the Britishness of that baby or the lack of the Britishness of that baby is clearly connected to the lack of Britishness of Shamima Begum. Yeah. Right? In, yeah. She has given birth to this child because she has decided to go and fight for ISIS. And in her decision to, fight, to go and fight for ISIS, she has forfeited her British citizenship. And therefore, she has forfeited the British citizenship of her baby, and that, that's yeah. the logic, right? And it, it, that's quite a colonial, colonial and and American sort of slave owning type of law. Yeah, you yeah. know, there's a, well, and not just British colonialism. The the kind of Spanish colonial mm-hmm. governments had mm-hmm. very extensive mm-hmm. uh, laws, kind of identifying, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm rights based on based on race and all these mm. different categories mm. around um and did if you were indigenous mm. if you were um mixed race if mm. you, you and it it feels very colonial mm. um which is not which is counter to a lot of the mid 20th century discourse yeah. that was trying to dismantle mm. using legal frameworks, mm. trying to dismantle those older colonial mm. laws around inherited race and inherited status. Mm. How does, how does the, in this particular story, so in Shamima Begum's story specifically, how does the intersection of Islam and race work? In other words, were she to be, if she were white and Muslim and decided to have gone or was put forced to, persuaded to, convinced to, however we, we frame her decision, her, her, her journey to, to go and fight for ISIS, would we, would we still be talking about whether or not she was going to be stripped of her citizenship if she was white British Muslim? I don't know. In other words, yeah. I'm trying to figure out whether probably is racism a more powerful force here, or is Islamophobia a more powerful force here? Is what I'm trying to figure out. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting, um, and we should probably do another episode on anti-Semitism yeah. and Islamophobia, yeah. um, because kind of liberal commentators have have, I think, 
quite naively, but mm-hmm. out of you know a, a mm-hmm. good intention, called for kind of new alliances between uh, uh, British Jewish communities and British Muslim communities, um, without sort of attention paid to the historical, <laughs> the, the sort of problematic yeah. uh, histories there. Yeah. Um, but the the race religion. Mm. And oppression yeah. crossover yeah. has never been dealt with, and I think you know the the kind of uh, the relationship between fears of Islam and fears of non-white people who mm. are Muslim. Mm. There's crossover, but there's also they are also they can be pulled apart. They can yeah. be picked apart, and there is mm. a real there. I, I do think there's a, a real fear or suspicion of white people who convert to Islam. Yeah. Um, especially yes. women. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, especially with women, there's the white savior complex kicks in yeah. more clearly, right? Where we, you have to sort of rescue someone who's, who's clearly subjugated and oppressed because of her decision to become Muslim. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's... I I I don't know if if she if she were white if she would have been stripped of her citizenship possibly even more so I mean who yeah, knows like it's so. really mm. really um I mean it's a really th- bizarre question difficult question I think a white person who decided to go and join a, a right wing militia in southern United States would not be uh, would not is would would be less likely to face having their citizenship stripped away. Yes. I think that's 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 fair. Yes, absolutely. Uh, whether whether race trumps religion in, in the context of Islamophobia uh, is is a more more difficult question to answer because Islamophobia is is already raced in a way that a white person who becomes Muslim becomes less white by virtue of becoming Muslim. Yeah. Um, so the, those things are always already connected. Yeah. yeah. I'm not sure that um, that Islamophobia, like anti-Semitism, mm. have been dealt with well enough by post-structuralists, mm, mm, for example. Mm, mm. Um, it's a very... I think it's a worthy question, but I also don't think it's been mm. handled, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. There are lots of people writing about Islamophobia, mm, and there are mm. lots of people who've written about anti-Semitism extremely well. Mm, mm. But in terms of being able to being able to have the kind of theoretical tools to challenge or respond to something like this. Yeah, I, I remember quite a long time ago I had a conversation on Facebook where I was... It, I, I noticed a, a trend of people people being Islamophobic, having been accused of being racist, responding that I can't be racist because Islam isn't a race. Yeah. And that... that I remember thinking at the time that it's really interesting what's going on here because is the implication clearly is that 
racism is a less acceptable form of prejudice than Islamophobia. In other words, the logic is, you can accuse me of Islamophobia if you want, because that's rational and reasonable to be Islamophobic because Muslims are terrorists or whatever the logic is. Yeah. But you can't accuse me of being racist. Yeah. Because that's a worse accusation, right, is the implication. Kind of like with anti-Semitism. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, I... Yeah, I'm not, I'm not racist, but, you know, I might think that possibly yeah. there are a couple of Jewish men who are behind everything. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. outrageous. Yeah. Like, you know, the, yeah. the, um, the kind of desire to not be seen as racist, but like, I'm going to stand by my anti-Semitism mm. or I'm going to stand by, by my Islamophobia. It's mm. very... Mm. I mean, talk about normalizing. Mm. Especially because both Islamophobia and, and anti-Semitism are so clearly raced. Yeah. Right? And, and, and it, it, it's raced in every context, right? So, so even, even in the context of internationalism, Islamophobia is raced. Yeah. Because Muslims are outsiders and yeah. they're not Indian, even though they clearly are. Yeah. You know, like, it's the, the, the rhetoric about... Uh, Muslims coming in, invading India, taking over, impregnating our women—all of that is yeah. is a race panic. I mean, yeah. it's 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 um, yeah. And there's elements yeah. of eugenicist yeah. thinking around yeah. around uh, trying to rid the country of yeah. the Muslim threat. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so even when it isn't, even when the difference between the bodies are not what we would call raced differences, as in they're, they're clearly physically from the same ethnic groups, as it were, and all of this is within scare quotes, obviously. Uh, the prejudice, the religious prejudice, clearly takes uh, clearly takes raced forms. And to bring yeah. it back to Shreem Abedham, you know, the, the, the markers of race are skin colour, are, are, you know, photos of her wearing a hijab, uh, all of those things which mark her out as Muslim, mark her out as different, um, and make it easier, shall we say, for her to be rendered un-British because yeah. she was never really British in the first place, right? That that's the implication, right? She was always an outsider, and the, and her decision to go and fight for, for ISIS proves her outsider status. Therefore, we can we can expel her. Yeah. And denying children of uh, children who aren't white or children who are Muslim. Um, and this presumably extends to children who are Jewish, um, that they are more at risk of becoming radicalized. They're more at risk of making decisions that challenge the kind of the, the, free, civilized state. Mm. Um, therefore, they are... They should not be afforded the, the freedom and protection that children who are less likely to become radicalized are. They should be watched more closely. They because, should yeah. be surveilled. They mm. should be monitored. Mm. They should uh, have their sort of freedoms curtailed yeah. in order to protect the state. Yes. Uh, and, and it's the, 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 the threat that they pose that rendered them not children. Yeah. Right? It is it is in that threat that they become adults. Yeah. 
whatever their age is because they have the potential to be made dangerous yeah yeah well, that's cheery. Yeah. We we have a f- reputation to maintain. It's true. We bring joy to the we world. We bring joy to the world. Um, thanks a lot for listening. I hope that was of use and or interest. Um, let us know. Tweet at us. Facebook us. Comment us. Shout, shout at us on the streets if you see us. Um, Don't do that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, let us know what you think and uh, see you next week bye bye we hope you enjoyed this episode I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick and I have been Anindya Vichardry you can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz and me at Dr. Anindya R our music was provided by the Agrarians and this has been State of the Theory thank you where would we be